turn in the, your Bibles this morning uh, to the book of Isaiah. I'm going to take a little break again uh, from our Gospel of Mark. I will come back to that, but uh, I'm going to turn us to Isaiah, some thoughts there this morning. Sir William Osler was one of the most brilliant minds of modern medical history. He was born a Canadian in Ontario, educated at McGill University where he later taught. He also practiced medicine, medicine in Montreal. He did a lot to impact the way medicine was taught and practiced. Not only was Osler an incredible student of medicine, but he was also a very uh, compassionate person. It is said that one day he entered the pediatric ward of a London hospital and noted with delight the children who were playing at one end of the room. And his gaze then was drawn to one small girl who sat off by herself to one side. She was sitting on her bed, a doll in her arms. And alone, Osler asked the head nurse about her and he discovered that she had been kind of ignored by the other children. Her mother had already died and her father had paid but one visit and had given that doll, at which at that moment she was tightly clutching. Apart from that visit, no one had come to see her and as a result, the other children concluded that she was unimportant and treated her with indifference. Well, Sir William was always at his best in moments such as these and he immediately walked to the child's bed and he said to her, may I please be seated? He said it in a voice loud enough to carry so all the other kids could hear him. And he said to her, I can't stay long on this visit, but I've wanted to see you so badly. And then those that were there describing the moment said the little girl's eyes just became wide, became very attentive. And for several minutes, the physician conversed with her in quiet, almost secretive tones. And then he inquired about the doll's health, appeared to put the stethoscope to the little doll's heart listened very carefully, rose to leave, again lifting his voice so that everyone else in the room could hear him and said, now you won't forget our secret, will you? And mind you, don't tell anyone. And as Osler left the room, he turned to see the once ignored youngster, now at the center of every other child's attention. The compassionate doctor created a new dynamic in the little girl's life. That moment of complete attention helped restore in that child a renewed sense of value. How many think that's kind of important? You know, everybody has dignity. You know, we're all made in the image of God. It also lifted her out of that neglect and apathy by others. At that moment, Dr. Osler was never more like our Father in heaven. Upon seeing a need, responded with wisdom and compassion. Had it not been for that compassion, that little girl would have remained isolated and in pain. And there are far too many of God's children today that feel like that little girl, feeling alone, hurt, wondering where our father is. And maybe there's that feeling in your own life. Maybe there's a disquiet or an unrest in your soul. You know, one of the things I've learned in this journey in the Christian life is there are various moments and seasons. How many have discovered that? There are moments of great joy. There's times of incredible blessing. There's moments of anxiety. There's moments of perplexity. There's moments of challenge. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, we have the season of spring. Everything is happening. We see new life blooming everywhere. You know, we have harvest moments. And then we have those moments of winter season where everything seems to be dead. 
dead. There's no life. God seems absent. God's voice seems silent. We wonder, you know what happened? Where, what, where is God in this situation? <clears throat> and we all have walked through those moments. And at that moment, especially in the winter season of the soul, or as another writer said, the dark night of the soul, there's always a temptation to cave into our emotions. You know, how many here say, Pastor, I'm quite emotional? I, you know, anybody here? You're, you're a highly emotional person. No, it's okay. That's the way God made you. Nothing wrong with that. The only problem is we can't allow our emotions to define our lives. Isn't that true? And some of you have discovered that, you know. I think emotion is good. God gave it to us. But we can't let them govern our lives. And that's the thing we need to realize. I think there's a temptation sometimes to give up. Maybe we've reasoned in our mind, we've tried and tried, but there seems to still be a lack in our soul. Maybe we wonder within ourselves why God has not seen our plight and rescued us from our prison of pain. You know, a lot of people live with emotional pain. It's true. And I think in our culture, we self-medicate. Isn't that right? You know, we either go to the doctor and we get prescriptions to self-medicate or we actually medicate ourselves with alcohol and drugs and we see it a lot in our culture today. The only problem is surrendering to our emotions that it will not bring the needed hope and comfort that we so passionately long for. We often fail to remember that our soul is the object of a great battle. We are under attack from unseen spiritual forces endeavoring to bring discouragement, doubt, despair, hopelessness into our souls. And God promises to meet that cry of our heart. I love what Psalm 37, the writer says, delight yourself in the Lord and what will happen? He will give you what? The desires of your heart. And now we're not talking about the superficial desires, the ones that are closer to the surface of our lives. Rather, it's the inner longing for love that is unconditional, a sense of security, a confidence in the future, a measure of worth, dignity, and value as an individual. God hears that cry, and he can hold that need thereby, giving each of us a sense of wholeness. You know, Augustine was right when he penned these, these immortal war, words in the fourth century. Our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in thee. And that's the truth. You know, if you're going to look for some sort of a solace, some sort of a place where you're going to be repaired, you're going to get whole, you're going to get well, you're not going to find that in anyone else but God himself. The problem is that many of us are not resting in the loving grace of our Lord. Intellectually, we know these things are true, but sometimes when we're not experiencing it, it seems to mock us. We truly long for it, but may not at this moment experience that in our lives. And so our soul's cry can easily be reflected by the words of that ancient prophet Isaiah when he wrote in chapter 40, verse 27. I'm going to have you turn there. We're going to look at this chapter. I'm going to read most of the verses. I'm not going to show you them on my PowerPoint. It's one of my little devices to make you look at your Bibles. Okay? So you want to be in Isaiah chapter 40. Let's look at verse 27. It says there, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Or we could say it in our own terminology, where is God in my pain? Where is God in my situation? Where is God in the sorrow of my soul? Where is God in this affliction that I'm feeling? Maybe it's emotional today, spiritual. The real problem is that we may not, uh, uh, that what's happening is that it's not that God is not there, but rather our lack of understanding 
of who God truly is. You know, we rarely see ourselves as the problem. Isn't that true? Because we live with ourselves. We rarely identify ourselves as the source of the problem. You know, how many here know what I'm talking about? We, have a, we do a lot with blame. You know, look at your life. You know, if it wasn't for my parents, if, they hadn't, if they'd have done a better job, or if they'd have provided this, or if it wasn't for that teacher, if it wasn't for the person I was married to, you know, if they could just get their act together. I mean, we could go on and on. We, it's so easy to blame other people for the way things are. Isn't that true? We rarely see ourselves as the problem. And yet, the reality is, we're all part of the problem. Isn't that true? Yeah, we're all fallen human beings. We all deal with a sinful nature. We're all, you know, somewhat at risk here. And so I think sometimes as we, we, we get upset with God, we blame God. You know, God, you're just letting me down. You're just not coming through. You know, you just seem so indifferent to my situation, God. You, you just seem like you don't care about my pain. You just, you're, not, you're not noticing my present predicament. Why don't you just come in here and, and sweep me up and rescue me and do what needs to be done? You know, but could it be that in our world we take ourselves far too seriously and God not seriously enough? What do you think? How many here can probably say, you know, I think I take myself far more seriously than I take God. Anybody here might be willing to say that's probably true about myself. You know, I take myself more seriously than I do God. Or could it be that our world originates with ourself at the center and God is somewhere on the sidelines? You know, that's kind of how we see life. You know, we're at the middle of it, and, you know, we're, we're trying to get God to do what we need him to do for us. We're, we're the ones that are determining and defining the way life should be. And so, in a sense, we're at the center, and God is at the periphery of our lives. Could it be that we've lost sight of God's majesty and his greatness? Or as J.I. Packer says, that we lose sight of that which stimulates the Christian instinct of trust and worship. He's saying something very profound there. You know, trust and, and worship comes as we have a vision of God. Maybe what we need is a greater vision of God. As a matter of fact, when I consider Isaiah's own story in Isaiah chapter six, when he's in the temple, and he says, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He had, a, he had a vision of the transcendent God. He, you know, the, the train of his temple filled. You know, there was smoked. I mean, he saw the angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. I mean, how many go, that was pretty profound. And immediately, what does Isaiah do? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, when he got a vision of God, he saw himself for who he really was. And then he saw the nature of God and compassion reach down and take, you know, a cold and touch his lips and bring healing into his life. And, and then when God said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, here my Lord, send me. There was a transformation that happened inside of Isaiah. He was willing to do God's will because he had, had an amazing vision of God. You know my prayers today? We'll have a vision of God. How many think we almost need a transcendent vision of God? We need to almost be lifted beyond ourselves to see God as he truly is. And as we begin to see him as he truly is, everything else gets into its proper perspective. Ourselves, our pain, our plight, our sorrow, our difficulty. And that's what we're gonna to try to do today. We're gonna to look at it this way. Could it be that we pursue the false substitutes and trappings of worldly values and find them empty and then blame God for the emptiness in our souls? 
In other words, we've gone after what life has to offer. We've come up empty, and then we blame God for our emptiness. Could it be? There are moments in all of our lives that we need a message of comfort, a message that will help us transcend our momentary afflictions and lift our hearts to new heights and new hopes. And Israel was at that moment when Isaiah penned these words in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, we gain a new glimpse of the majesty of God that brings renewed hope and renewed vision. A vision of God that transforms worn, broken, empty hearts and fills us with incredible hope and joy. Our understanding regarding the nature and character of God will determine how we will respond to him. And in Isaiah 40, we discover something of the awesomeness of God. This upward glimpse transforms our earthly struggles. I think we have to remember something. Isaiah is writing in poetic language. You know, poetry is beautiful. It's powerful. It causes us to reflect. It causes us to stop, you know. All these words are measured out. They're, they're defined, they're, they're designed, I should say, to make us reflect and think. And so I want to look at the nature of God in this chapter. I want to look at four characteristics or four elements or four aspects of God's character that Isaiah focuses on and that's designed to encourage us. And first of all, the first one I want to look at is his eternal nature. Do you know integrity, I shared something about integrity last week, but integrity is being consistent with what we say and who we are. Isn't that true? It means we're integrated. In other words, what we say is consistent with who we are. We know that is true about our God. What he says he will do because of who he is. God says, I cannot lie. You know, if I say something, I'll do it. That's great. That's a great assurance. Do you know God's word is eternal in both nature and scope? As a matter of fact, in verse 8, listen to what he writes. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, how many know when grass is, you know, you ever been seeing a beautiful manicured lawn, beautiful grass? Then you look at those beautiful flowers and you come into a garden like that. Isn't that, how many think that's beautiful? It is beautiful. Anybody else like beauty like that? I love flowers. You know, Patty loves flowers. We have flowers. If you came to our house, we have flowers everywhere. I love flowers. I love beauty. And yet, it's, trans, it, it's transitory. It will wither and they will die. It's kind of sad, isn't it? You see beauty withering and dying. It's really tragic. And yet, we're using that as a contrast between the nature of God's word. He says, God's word is always beautiful. It's always there. It never wilts. It's just there. It's eternal. Do you know generation after generation have heard these words? Generation after generation have been sustained by these words. And you know if Jesus tarries, generations after us will be sustained by these words. They are enduring words. They're eternal in nature. It's powerful. You know, words are extremely powerful. They reveal our hearts. They judge our motives. They're used by God to create faith and life and hope and healing. Truly, they do move mountains. We are told by scientists that every sound we utter goes on indefinitely throughout the atmosphere. Every word you speak continues. You know, there's sound waves moving, television waves. There's all kinds of things happening, but our words have life to them. 
Not only do God's words live forever, but also our words live on. We underestimate the power of words and their effects. How many know that's probably true? You know, words that were spoken in anger 25 years ago could be harboring in someone's heart right now, and they've been defining your entire life. Father says to a child, you'll never amount to anything. And for the rest of that life, that young boy is living with those haunting words within his soul, trying his best to not make those words reality in his life. But ever so often, hearing the echoes of that angry tone and voice saying, you'll never amount to anything. Don't you think words have power? Listen to what Jesus taught, that the effects of our words, good or evil, believing or unbeliever, believing go on eternally. Words live forever. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, it says this, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. How many here have probably spoken a few careless words? I got my hands up. Every hand should be up. We've all spoken careless words. Come on now. Have you thought through every single word you've ever said? Of course not. But by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Ouch. Can you imagine God starts replaying with a tape recorder every word you and I ever said? So I'll take that words back, right? I don't want those to be replayed, right? I'm sure down the road we've probably said a few things we shouldn't have said. And too often we allow the words of men to affect us more than the word of God and his promises. Wow. We forget that God's word is more real, has more substance, and will endure the test of time whereas the circumstances of life come and go. What am I trying to say to you? I think we've allowed a lot of temporal things to define our lives when we should be allowing God's word to define our life. His word is eternal. Let's hang on to them rather than allow the circumstances to determine our sense of well-being. You know, the one good thing about a trial is it'll come to an end. No amens? That's the good thing about a trial. You know it's not gonna last forever, you know? You say, well, yeah, but there's some situations that can last a long time. That's true. Some situations can last a long time, but they're not going to last through all, all, all eternity. Amen? Amen? That's the truth. And so we need to hang on to what God has to say. Here in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah is writing about the promise of Israel coming out of the Babylonian captivity. I find this very interesting. Judgment's purpose is to produce peace in our hearts. You know, God's... God disciplines us so that you and I can be corrected so that the ultimate end result is that we're, we end up with the result of being in a right relationship with God, which is peace. You actually come to that maturing state, you know, where we go, you know what, yeah, I messed up in this area in my life. But, you know, I, when I was, before I was afflicted, I went astray. That's what Psalm 119 says. Remember reading that? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But after God's affliction, he brings us to himself, and you and I now have greater wisdom, more maturity, and we have a sense of peace as a result of knowing what is right. Listen to what Isaiah 40, verses one and two says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. What's her hard service there? her exile, it's been completed. That her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. 
God does speak tenderly into our lives after times of testing and trial, after times of discipline. God wants to reassure us of his love. Do you know one of the things we do when we discipline a young child, what do we have to do after we discipline them? We need to reassure them. Isn't that true? Because when you discipline someone, sometimes people interpret that as you don't love me, you don't care about me. When in reality, you're disciplining them because you love them and you care for them. As a matter of fact, if you don't discipline them, you don't love them and you don't care for them. We need to hear that message because in this culture, we've, we've got it wrong. We think that when people are corrected and disciplined, that that's an expression of harshness and, and, and a lack of love. That's what we've been taught. But that's not true, folks. And that's why a lot of people today continue on in their waywardness and self-destructedness because no one cares enough to speak into their lives and say, listen, I love you so much, I'm willing to risk relationship in order to help you understand that what you are doing is self-destructive and is hurting other people. This is contrary to our culture, what I'm just saying. But it's totally biblical because God will correct us. God will discipline us. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines every child that is his. Have you not read that? It says, my son and my daughter, do not despise the disciplining of God. And don't we despise it? Many times, unfortunately, we do. We think, well, God doesn't care about me. But afterwards, there needs to be the reassurance. After the discipline, there needs to be words of affirmation and love. There needs to be the hug, the concern, the care. The person needs to know, listen, you're not doing this because you're, you, know, you don't love them. You're doing it because you love them. Are we getting that message? Did that get through? Everybody hear that? Is that gonna help some of you? Good. That's what it's meant to do. Listen, it's a message of restoration. Too often our personal sin brings devastation into our lives. Then in brokenness we start over again, hearing the tenderly spoken words of God. He's promising to raise up those in the valley of despair and devastation while at the same time leveling those that would exalt themselves. Look at verse four and five. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As we have experienced the power and presence of God restoring our lives, then we have something to say. Isn't it amazing that after restoration, we have a message? After discipline, we have something to share with others. We understand this truth. Listen, it was King David's experience after his failure with Bathsheba, he writes this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. How many love Psalm 51? You know which one I'm talking about? Some of you go, I don't remember the addresses of these beautiful psalms, Pastor. Well, Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. He goes on to say, Cast me not from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Folks, until we've experienced it for ourselves, we can't help anybody else. But the moment we have this experience, we have something to share with other people. We go, listen, 
I was once young, David says, now I'm old. I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor seed begging for bread. What's David doing? He says, this is my experience with God. Listen, when you and I, who don't know God, can say, I was once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Who said that? John Newton. Who was he? He was a rebellious young man that went out to sea, rebelled against his mother's God, rebelled to the point where he became a slaver and and shackled other people, and then through a great storm cried out for God's mercy. God delivered him. He knew he was a sinner. That's why he, he wrote that beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How could he teach us that? Because he lived it. He experienced it. Here we're challenged to cry out that life is temporary, but God is eternal. So often in our day-to-day lives, we forget that powerful truth. And when we do, we start to live for that which is temporary rather than that which is eternal. You know what? We have to remind ourselves every day, I'm living for eternity. I'm living for eternal values. I'm living to stand in the presence of God. I'm living to do the right thing. I'm living to be God's servant on this planet, regardless of the cost. That kind of transcends life, doesn't it? If you knew that you were gonna die tonight, you're gonna live this day a lot differently, wouldn't you? How many say, I'm probably a little more careful in what I say, probably a little more careful what I'm gonna do today, because I know I'm gonna be facing Jesus tonight. I'm not gonna just act any old way. But shouldn't we live like that day to day? Knowing that any moment I could be standing in his presence? You know? Listen to what Isaiah 40, verse six through 10 says. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And then he says, all men are grass. What does he mean, all men are grass? And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Well, what, what's it, what happens to grass and flowers? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. What's he doing? He's contrasting the temporalness of humanity versus the eternalness of our God. You know what? I don't care how great a person is on this planet, they're temporary. In a mortal, we're all mortal, aren't we? We kind of forget that. We don't want to think about our mortality, Pastor. And yet God reminds us of it all the time. You know, as beautiful as spring and summer, then we get the fall and what starts happening? The leaves start dropping. Don't remind us. Leaves start dropping. We know we're coming to what? We're coming to winter. And do you know one day we're coming into the presence of our God? We need to remind ourselves of that. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. The word recompense means another way of saying God's gonna reward us. I mean, he's repeating, right? This is poetry. He's, He's restating it. Here is your God. God is able. He's coming in power. He's coming back. He's bringing his reward with him. Notice that his power is a gentle power. That's what meekness is all about in the New Testament. They said that Jesus was meek. Moses was meek. What does it mean? It means that they had strength, but they had it contained. It was strength under control. 
He's a nurturing God. He's a restoring God. He's a shepherd that's guiding the flock and gathering those of us close to his heart. It says in verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart. How many, you know what? Some of you go, where's God in my life? Close to his heart. He's carrying us. Listen, when you have somebody close to your heart, they can feel your heartbeat. Right? You know something? We need to get close to God until we can hear his heartbeat. I want to be so close to God I can hear his heartbeat. I want to know what he's like. I want to know what moves our God. I want to understand him. It says... He gently leads those who have young. One thing that I've noticed, you only develop confidence in someone's word based on the knowledge of their character and their ability and their love and concern for you as a person. Isn't that true? You're only gonna, you know, their confidence grows in a person who says, who says to you that they love you and they keep demonstrated by their behavior that they love you. Then your confidence goes up. Isn't that true? Of course. And that's what happens with God. What a beautiful description of God who's carrying out his promises. But let me move on to the second aspect of God's character. Not only is it eternal in nature, but it's unlimited in power. When we think of power, we seldom think of power under control. We think of raw power, right? You know, like a nuclear blast or, you know, like nature raging, you know, through and destroying things. We think of raw power. But you know what? Raw power, brute power is destructive. I mean, no, that's true. And we witness that, you know, mountains blowing their lids, you know, volcanoes. That's raw power. But see in verse 10, it says, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him see his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him and then in the next breath it says he tends his flock like a shepherd he gathers the lambs in his arm and carries them close to his heart how many are getting a sense that this raw power is a contained power you know how many times have I heard the tragic story of how power is used to abuse we hear it all the time someone in a position of trust and authority using their position rather than serving the needs of others to serve their own needs. That's a misuse of power. One thing we can be assured of, God uses his power and authority to serve us. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. Isaiah describes the limitlessness and the immensity of God's power. He measures the waters of the earth in an expression of speech that we can understand. Listen to what it says in verse 12. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Can you imagine going, oh, Pacific Ocean. Oh, yeah. That's, that's kind of how my mind works, you know. He's measuring out the oceans in the hollow of his hand. That's a kind of a graphic picture, isn't it? Now, we know that God's not literally a physical being and he's scooping up, you know, the Pacific Ocean in the hollow of his hand. But he's giving us a visual so that we get an idea of the immensity of his power. He has the ability. He's the one that's, you know, put the oceans in place. He's measuring it in the hollow of his hands. Or it says... Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Can you imagine God going, okay, Rocky Mountains, I'll just pick you up right now, put you here on a little scale and figure out how much you weigh. You know, he's kind of giving us these, these, this, you know, this, this, this language that we can kind of you know, use our imagination and think of the, the immensity of his power that he could literally do that. 
Then he goes on to say in verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. You know, I've, I've actually said this before in another sermon. I've used this idea, you know. I brought a bucket up here. I put one drop in it. And I go, okay, all the nations in the world fit in this one drop. So where do we fit in the drop? Pretty small, right? How many go, that kind of reduces us down to size. If you think you're big stuff, you don't even fit in the drop of the bucket. And yet God says what? He's cradling you in his arms, near his heart. How many think these are amazing word pictures? He's painting these pictures in our minds. It says in verse 17, before him all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned upon the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live. And he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Do you know the most powerful man on the planet is nothing in comparison to God? And yet we just ooh and awe over these wonderfully amazing, powerful people. God says, hey, they're nothing. Don't worry about them. It says, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they, they, wilder, they wither. You know, don't blow on me, God, I'm gone, <laughs> right? Are we getting the, it, you know, this, how many are already getting, this is poetry, but it's powerful, it's, it's eliciting emotion within us. What is God saying? Compared to God, who is humanity? We need to get a vision, folks, of the immensity, the greatness, the grandeur, the awesomeness of Almighty God. When you get a picture of that, and you go, wow, and he's carrying me near his heart? And here I am, stressed, worrying, frustrated. Wait a minute. We got a warped view of God. We better get a picture of who God is here. He says... To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. What is Isaiah saying to us? When we compare the immensity of creation or the great men of the ages, they are no match for God's power. You know, Pat Patrick o o uh, Boyle recalls in the late 1940s an appearance by Frank Sheed. He was a Roman Catholic author and publisher, and Sheed would, would actually you know, speak to you know, people, they would kind of have, you know, the, talking to people that were atheists and all the rest of it. And he would always have hecklers, you know, when he was speaking. He, it's just the nature of the guy, right? And after Sheed had described the extraordinary order and design to be seen in the universe, a persistent challenger retorted by pointing out to all the world's ills and ended by shouting, I could make a better universe than God. And of course, Sheed, you know, he, he's a pretty witty guy. He says, I won't ask you to make a universe, but would you just make a rabbit come? Uh, to make a, you know, just create a rabbit so you can establish a little confidence? You know, in other words, this guy says, I could create a better universe than God could. And, and uh, Sheed says, well, why don't you just create a rabbit? That'll give us a little confidence in your ability. In other words, we can't even do that. He's making a point. What's his point? We're not the creator. We're really good at criticizing, but we're not too good at creating. 
right? Third aspect of God's character that it should encourage us, not only his eternal nature, not only his unlimited power, but his unsearchable wisdom. Who can fully grasp what God is doing? In our limited understanding, we will never fully grasp how God works out his purposes in our world. Verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or who has instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? You know, it was said one day that Augustine was, you know, walking along the ocean's front. You know, Augustine's one of the great theologians of the church. And he was pondering the mystery of the Trinity. And he came upon a little boy who was playing with some seashells. And a little guy was scooping a hole in the sand. This is back before the days they had plastic, you know, pails and shovels, you know. Because he lived in the fourth century. So he was just making do with what, what he had at hand. He was playing with one of the seashells. And he would scoop a hole in the sand and run down to the water and grab his shell full of water and pour it into the little hole he had made. How many have ever seen kids do that? You know, they take their little bucket, run down there, you know, get some water, and they run back, and they've dug a little hole, and they pour the water into the sand. And so Augustine says, well, what are you doing, my little fellow? And he says, well, I'm gonna pour the entire sea into that hole. Ah, said Augustine, he says, that's what I've been trying to do. Standing at the ocean of infinity, I've attempted to grasp it with my finite mind. What was he saying? He's saying, I'm trying to understand who God is. You know, God, we sing that beautiful hymn, God in three persons, blessed trinity. You know what I've discovered recently, because I'm studying theology? The word person meant something totally different in the fourth century than it does today. And so when you and I sing that, we're thinking people, right? Distinct entities. And, and yet the trinity is not that at all. You and I don't fully grasp how God can be one, and yet they're God's in three essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. Augustine says, I've been trying to ponder and wrap my mind around it. He says, I can't do it. I cannot understand this God completely. He's beyond the scope of my understanding. I like that. Do you know what I've come to the deep conclusion the older I get? The more I'm encountering the word mystery. It's the only way to describe God. There's an element of mystery to it. He knows the course that each of us must run in order to grow in our relationships with him. You know, sometimes we wonder, God, why are you, why are you doing this in me? Why are you allowing this in my life? And God knows exactly what each one of us needs. He's aware of the pressures that we're undergoing. He knows exactly, if you think of it this way, you know, if we were all bench pressing today, kind of a weird analogy, but you'll get the pressure, get the idea. He knows how much weight you can lift. He knows how much weight to put on to help you develop to become stronger. He's putting just the right amount on. Some of you are going, this is killing me, pastor. Yeah, I know, it's heavy. But he's doing something. He's at work in our lives. We need to wait for God rather than to try to take things into our own hands. You know, Psalm 37, back to that beautiful psalm again. He said, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. How many of us go, patience is not my long suit, pastor. I have a tendency to be a little impatient in life. He says, don't fret when men succeed in their ways and when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to what? Evil. He says, don't get so upset about it. Relax. You think these guys are getting ahead? Most of these guys are just running themselves into the ground. Their crazy ideas is gonna take them out. They don't even know what they're doing. You know, feel sorry for them. 
Yeah, but they seem so blessed. You know, Psalm 37 was carrying on about that. Psalm 73 talks about that. You know, he said, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm envying the wicked people. They just seem to have a better life, blah, blah, blah. They just seem to be getting ahead. Here I am struggling, you know. He says, until I remembered. I got into the sanctuary, remember their end. Remember that? Hey, listen, it's not gonna work out exactly the way they think. Do you know waiting on God is hard to do? How many can say that's true? It's not easy. You know, you wait, nothing's happening. You wait, nothing's happening. You're crying out to God and nothing's happening. You've been praying for years and nothing's happening. You get frustrated. You're kind of like King Saul, or I'm like King Saul, you know? Samuel said, hey, wait, and I'll show up at a certain point. What did he do? It said there was all kinds of problems. You know, the army was coming against him. The Philistines were there. His own men were deserting. Saul was in a panic. He says, we better do this before it's too late. And how many know God always seems too late? For us, anyways. We always think he's too late. God's never too late. He's right on time. Just that he has a different timetable than we do. And he's doing something. He has a reason for it. And we know what happened to Saul. He lost his kingdom. He lost everything because he became impatient. Took things into his own hands. Why do we take things into our own hands? And here's the answer. Because we really don't trust that God will come through. No amens? Aren't we kind of concerned about that? You know, I'll take care of myself. Thank you very much. Well, you know, to a man undergoing one of the greatest spiritual battles, I spent two years preaching out of this book. Job, remember that? Poor Job, he didn't have a clue what was going on. How many know it was a spiritual battle? The Bible tells us it was. How many know God knew what was going on? Did Job? Nope. And so at the very end, after Job is, you know, Job got really upset with God. He had some pretty harsh things to say to God. He, he wanted to put God on trial. Remember that? I, I'm gonna put God on trial. You got a bunch of questions you're gonna have to answer to me. And I love how God comes to Job. Says, no, I'm putting you on trial, Job. You're gonna answer to me. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and he said, who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Wow. Brace yourself like a man, I'm gonna question you and you're gonna answer to me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What's God saying? Hey Job, when you can answer my questions, I'll answer yours. You know, who's accountable to whom here? Does God have to give an account to us or do we have to give an account to God? Yes, that's the right answer. We have to give an account to God. You're right. Let's look at it from God's perspective. Verse 15, I like this. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. In the current affairs of men, it seems that some are giants that control the destiny of others. But you know, they don't. How many, you know, I'm a little older now. Maybe some of you will remember this. How many remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Anybody remember that? Some, how many have heard of it? Okay, some of you have lived it. Do you know, I was living in southern Saskatchewan in a little, you know, my parents, my dad worked at the Department of Highways. We were, you know, he'd helped build roads. He was a surveyor. And I still remember this little trailer. And, you know, the world was fixated at that moment on the Cuban Missile Crisis. You could feel the tension. 
I could feel the tension in my parents. It was like everybody had taken a deep breath and were not exhaling. Do you know what I mean by that? You could, it was palatable. I was just a little guy, because you know, I was, what, six or seven years old. I could feel it. I could see it in these adults that were stressed and concerned that life would even go on. That we could have a nuclear disaster. You, you see what I'm saying? And yet, eventually it all dissipated. What am I saying? I'm saying this, you know, we need to remember that God has control over the nations. God has control over your personal world. Even when you feel it's falling apart, God is still in control. I think too often we look for meaning and security in life elsewhere. The problem with doing that is we place a person or a thing ahead of God. People, find, people and things are gonna fail you. God is the only one capable of keeping his word completely. He's the only one who has the character as well as the ability to do what he says. And he challenges us in verses 16 to 20 to see if any man-made resource can ultimately take his place. And the answer is no. Let me move on. The last point. I love this last point. It's that his strength is exchangeable. God's strength is exchangeable. What does this mean? Well, Let's remember the background. Very devastating time in the nation. It's been destroyed, taken into captivity. That which they had trusted in, the false idols, had totally failed them. By the way, if you're trusting in anything other than God, it's a false idol and it will ultimately fail you. They felt God had abandoned them. Now we come to the point of the message. It all comes down to verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? See, because remember the question, verse 27 is, God, you seem to have disregarded me. And then here's the answer. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. How many here said, man, I've been tired and weary many days. I've, I've gotten tired. I've gotten weary. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. In other words, search as much as you want, but you'll never fully grasp God. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, some translations say, those who wait on the Lord will what? Will renew their strength. But you know that word renew? You could change it out and put the word exchange. They're going to exchange their strength. What do you mean they're going to exchange their strength? It says they're going to renew their strength. They're going to soar on wings like eagle. You know, when I think of an eagle, I think of his ability to use his God-given ability to soar above the storms, and they have the incredible vision that an eagle has. They're able to fly high and see their prey below. And when we are soaring spiritually, it impacts our ability to handle the storms of life. It also suggests that we have incredible vision. People who have lost their spiritual vision are people who are struggling, people who are fainting. And the passage continues. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The analogy is comparing the energy and resources of a youth which will fail to those who have exchanged their weaknesses for God's strength. They that wait or hope in the Lord shall exchange their weakness for God's strength. How many here say, I want that exchange? I'll take it. I want it. I'm looking for it. You know, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I'm just quoting scripture now. 
Be strong in the Lord. You know, our strength comes from God. You're not enduring in your own strength. It's when we hope in God, when we're looking to God, when we're trusting God, when we're waiting on God. Our, our faith is in God. You know, I love what Tony Evans, he's a pastor, he wrote a number of years ago. It's a beautiful picture of living the empowered life in the strength of God's spirit. He said, you know, one day I was rushing to catch an airport and if you've ever been late, he's running down the hallway and all of a sudden, as fast as he was running, there was a guy walking and he was passing him. And he thought, how, is this, how can this be? I'm running and he's walking and he's passing me. How many already figured it out? Well, he was on a moving sidewalk. That's why he was moving faster, you know? When we walk in the spirit, God comes underneath us and bears us along. We're, it's kind of like the moving sidewalk. How many appreciate the moving sidewalks in airports? Some of you say, amen, good, I love them. You know, if you've gone to some of these airports in the world, I mean, you can walk for almost two miles before you get anywhere. It's amazing how big these airports are. And they have these moving sidewalks, and aren't you glad for them, you know? And that's what I'm talking about. God's spirit is carrying us, bearing us along. We're still walking, but we're walking in dependency on him. Our lives will never be effective apart from God. So how do we handle the pressures and challenges of life? My brother and my sister, look up. We need to be reminded of the nature and the character of Almighty God. We need to stop looking at our circumstances, the diminishing words of others, and we need to stop looking at ourselves. When we consider the eternal nature of God's word, his unlimited power, his unsearchable wisdom, and his willingness to exchange his strength for our weakness, we need to come to him. Amen? We need, we should not allow, you know, if we feel maybe here today weak, exhausted, confused, perplexed, we need to remind ourselves of the greatness of our God. He will sustain us. He will strengthen us. Let us stand. Hallelujah. You know, my prayer today was we'd have a vision of God. How many go, I need a vision of God? You know, is this encouraging? Is this encouraging? How many say, I'm encouraged? I'm not going to look to myself. I'm not going to look at my problems. I'm not going to look at what people are saying to me. I'm not going to look at my circumstances. I'm not even going to allow my emotions to define me today. I'm going to look up. I'm going to walk out of here knowing the power of the living God. I'm receiving his strength today. How many here say, Pastor, I'm, I want to make an exchange right now. My weakness for God's strength. I'm exchanging my weakness for God's strength. Let's do that this morning. Every hand, let's just lift our hands to God. Say, Lord, I exchange my sinfulness, my brokenness, my discouragement, my despair, my doubt, my frustrations, the words that have been spoken into my life, words of negativity, words that have defined my life for so long. Right now, I surrender those words to you and exchange them for your words about me. You have a different... Uh, evaluative system about my life you care about me right now I know that you are carrying me near your heart you've lifted me up you're bearing me along and I exchange now all my sorrow my disappointment my hurt and my heartache I exchange my weakness my sinfulness and my frustration and now I receive your grace I receive your hope I receive your strength I receive your blessedness 
I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your life. I thank you that you're the almighty God. I thank you that you're all powerful. I thank you that you're the all wise God. That you know better than I do, Father. You know exactly where I'm at. You know exactly how much I can handle. Lord, you're taking, you're leading me by your Holy Spirit. You're guiding my steps, Lord. You're guiding our steps, oh God. Hallelujah. We thank you for that, Lord. We just receive, we're making this exchange today. Our brokenness for your wholeness. We just thank you for that. Jesus' name. Amen.